Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Tony Tibbs fell off a ladder. Was it last week, Sue? Tony Tibbs? And broke three ribs, so uh, please keep him in your prayers. Ask as you pray with me. Lord, we do thank you. It's always so great, no matter how our week goes, when we can gather together in fellowship and sing and uh, learn from your word and encourage one another and admonish one another all the things that we need to do to have a victorious Christian life. Pray that you would take these words today, Lord. As I say every Sunday, you know the hearts of everyone in here and what they need to hear. I pray that you would uh, just let your word bear great fruit this morning. We ask in your name, amen. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. We left last week with Beniah meeting a lion in a pit on a snowy day and emerging victorious. If there had been movies in that ancient day, am I on? I don't sound like I'm on, am I? Okay. If there had been movies in that ancient day, there would not have been a Rocky or a Rambo. The movie would have been named Beniah. He will continue to impress us this morning. Look at verse 21. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. After Benaiah slew a lion, which is a symbol of Satan, he slew a man from Egypt. Why would I bring that out? Because Egypt is often symbolic of the world. And how did Benaiah overcome the Egyptian? It says initially he went down to meet him with nothing but his staff. I think it's interesting that in scripture the staff is often emblematic of a pilgrim. And so how do we overcome the world? By being a pilgrim and remembering that this world is not our home. What do I mean? This world will have no pull over you if you keep your heart set on things above instead of the things of this earth. I can tell you in my own life, those times that I have blown it, it is invariably because I lost sight of the reality of eternity and was instead locked onto the immediate situation I was in. 
But as long as you have a staff in your hand, remember that we are all pilgrims just passing through. The world will lose its power and its pull over you. In 1 Peter 2.11, the old burly fisherman turned apostle gives us this advice. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. That's great advice. And so be a pilgrim. Be one who is just passing through. One who is headed home. And please note that Benaiah and the 30 other men also had two other things in common. They belonged, and they too served the king, but they didn't make the top three. Now, did that make their service to the king of any less account? No, it did not. Here is the lesson for us today. If you feel rejected, unimportant, or of no value to God, those times you are tempted to feel slighted or hurt because you don't make the top three, remember, we all serve the same king. Our jobs are all important, and we need to be constantly aware that we need each other to accomplish them, and that we should fit wherever the Lord places us. Proverbs 20.12 tells us, The hearing ear and the seeing eye the Lord has made them both. Some of us are eyes. Some of us are ears. Some of us are elbows. The Bible compares us to a body, and all the parts of a body are important. For example, though no one ever sees your liver, without your liver, you will surely die. I love Gail Irwin here. In the Jesus style, he makes this observation. He writes, The analogy of our being a body can be carried to some logical conclusions. No body has any ambitious parts. You would never hear my toes say to me, If I'm a really good toe, can I work my way up the body and become a knee or an elbow or a nose? Ridiculous. My toes spend most of their lives in darkness. They have been seen by only a few people. They work under great pressure and in less than the best atmosphere. Yet they do not complain that they have never tasted ice cream or that the face gets more attention. Never once have they said, if this is all the thanks I get, I'm going to join another body. <laughs> that happens quite often, by the way. <clears throat> Simply put, for the church to operate at peak efficiency, we all need to do our part, whatever that may be. Verse 24, please. At the end of this chapter, we have a part of the Bible that at first sight may seem unpromising. Thank God for the nursery workers. <laughs> <laughs> there are many names, most of which are otherwise unknown. So, I shall try and pronounce them, and so be patient and kind with your servant. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah, the Herodite. Alika, the Herodite. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekoite. Abiezer, the Anathite. 
Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, I think, <laughs> Mahari the Nethophathite, Hela the son of Biana the Nethophathite, Ittai the son of Ribai, it's probably not Ribai, I may just be hungry. <laughs> anyway, from Gibeah the children of Benjamin, Benaiah a Parathonite, Hidai from the brooks of Gaosh, Abba Albon the Arbathite, Asmapheth the Barhumite, Eliabba the Shalabonite of the sons of Jason, Jonathan, pretty sure I got that one right, Shiama the Herite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Herite, Alephalet the son of Ahashbi, the son of Meachahathite. It's not easy. Eliam the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, Hezri the Carmelite, Parari the Arbite, Igol the son of Nathan of Zubah, Bainah the Gadite, Zelech the Ammonite, Nahare the Berathite, armor bearer of Joah the son of Zeruah, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. When I get to heaven, I'm sure they're going to be asking me why I murdered their names. But <laughs> We haven't time to study each of these men in this chapter, though each surely are worthy of respect and honor. Even in this day, far removed from the days in which David was king, these were valiant men. But if they were not named here, we would know nothing of them. So as you read this list of David's mighty men, the chapter concludes by telling you who some of these men were. You can hardly pronounce them. They only appear once on the pages of Scripture, most of them. But the last name in the list cannot fail to catch our attention, for it is Uriah the Hittite. The sketch of David's kingdom and the strength it enjoyed through David's mighty men ends on a somber and sad note. All the mighty men in our passage may have been devoted, courageous, faithful, and great servants of David. David, however, murdered one of them. This reminder of David's adultery and the unraveling of his family and kingdom that ensued points to the greatest weakness of David's kingdom, which was David himself. Remember what happened? At the height of David's fame, when other king, kings went to war in April, he stayed home. He saw Bathsheba and coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery with her and then to his shock found out that she was pregnant. And then David saw that her husband was brought back from battle because he knew that if he could just get her husband into bed with her, he could cover up what had taken place. Bathsheba's husband was, of course, Uriah the Hittite. But I'm sure to David's absolute dismay, he didn't go along with David's scheme. He said to David, I can't do that. I can't go home. I can't go to bed with my wife. My soldiers are still fighting in the field. They're living in pup tents. They're eating pork and beans out of a can. I can't be disloyal to them. I can't enjoy the benefits of home, not while they're out fighting in the field. And so he stayed like a soldier on sentry duty at the palace. And he would not go home. 
He was loyal to David. He was loyal to the cause. And he was loyal to his fellow soldiers. Now last week we saw David at his absolute best pouring out the waters the three soldiers had brought him as a drink offering to the Lord. But in this instance, David spilled out that water of Uriah's devotion like it was sewer water. He even sent a note back with Uriah to Joab and said, put Uriah in the forefront of the battle and then retreat from him so that he will be killed. And because of David's adultery, Uriah and several other brave men lost their lives. Now, it was murder, planned, premeditated murder, as much as if David would have taken a sword and driven it through the heart of Uriah himself. But for a while, it looked like David had got away with it. Then Nathan came and told that story to David, the story of a man who had just one little ewe lamb that was really more of a pet than anything. And across the way, there was a man who had great herds and flocks. And this wealthy man had a visitor from a distant country. And in order to have a barbecue, instead of taking one of his own flock, he went across the road and took the lamb of that poor neighbor and he killed it instead. Now hearing this, David was furious. After all, David was a man of integrity. When it came to stealing lambs, David had high moral standards. Oddly enough, not so sensitive when it came to stealing wives. David said, the man who did this deserves to die. He'll pay fourfold for what he has done. And Nathan said, you are that man. David finally confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, according to Deuteronomy 22.22, he deserved to die because of adultery. And because of Numbers 35, he deserved capital punishment for his sin of murder. The thing was, is there were no sacrifices to take care of sins like that. But in Psalm 51, David prays, God have mercy upon me according to your compassion. Why? Why should God forgive him? Because God was loyal to David according to his own purposes and grace. God was loyal to his own mercy. God was loyal to his own love. And God was loyal to David. All David could do was accept this incredible mercy and move on. And since none of us in here can change the past, sometimes all we can do is move on. When Australia was a new nation, its leaders established a national crest. Two animals stood on each side of the crest, the kangaroo and the emu. Now these two animals share a unique characteristics. While kangaroos and emus both turn their heads to glance backwards in order to get their bearing, they're always moving forward. Though each animal can reach speeds up to 30 miles per hour, neither one is able to walk backwards. And so the founders of Australia wanted their country represented by what moved forward and never backwards. This is just what Christ has called us to do. 
Look back long enough to recognize and learn from our mistakes, but always keep moving forward. And isn't that what Paul would one day write in Philippians 3.13? He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as of yet laying hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now last week we saw three of David's men fight the Philistines at Bethlehem to bring back a jug of water from David's childhood well. And so in order that David might be forgiven, David's greatest son Jesus came and fought the host of hell and went to Bethlehem as a baby. And at the cost of his life, he drew water from the wells of salvation. In his loyal love, Jesus takes our acts of devotion, tarnished and polluted sometimes though they may be, and he sanctifies them and he brings them to the Father. What is more, the loyalty of Christ never ceases. He also has a list. It is called the Book of Life. But there is never one of us who are followers of Christ, a Uriah the Hittite. He never betrays us. He never turns against us. It is loyalty forever. Really what I want us to get from this list is that these men did some amazing things. Things they themselves could never have dreamed of doing in their own strength. So how did they do it? They were hanging with the right people and they were keeping their eyes on what God could do through them rather than what others said was possible. Here's a truth that any child of God can get behind. So long as we are fighting the Lord's battle, he will deliver us. Now, he may deliver us through death, but he will always deliver us. The problem for far too many of us is we are always trying to fight our own battles. And when we do that, the outcome of that battle fully rests upon our strength. But if I am contending for the truth, once delivered to the saints, and battling for the souls of men, God assures me that I will prevail in those types of battles. Now, I know I speak to some in here who think that their present battle is impossible. Listen carefully. Our Lord specializes in resolving the impossible. If he can deliver six million slaves out of the hand of the most powerful nation on earth, making those slaves into a nation, if he can deliver a giant into the hands of a shepherd boy, if he can send fire down from heaven and devour a sacrifice and the altar on which it was arranged, if he can deliver three men from a fiery furnace, if he can shut the mouths of lions so that his servant is unharmed when they are in the den with the beast, you may be assured they can also deliver you. What I'm saying is, each of you who are willing to be used by God can be used if you commit yourself truly and fully to him. But sadly, we live in a day when many profession Christians want someone to do all their thinking for them. They want someone to feed them. They want someone to care for them. 
in the church you have pillars and caterpillars who both hold up the church for different reasons. God is not looking for more infants among the faithful. God is looking for valiant warriors who will trust him to accomplish the impossible through them. So I encourage you this morning to take on any challenge that he may assign you and know that he will equip you for that task. And so let's be those who help and not hinder. Even though it seems foolish and impossible to others, you are in good company. Noah looked foolish building an ark. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes. David looked foolish going into battle with only a slingshot. The wise men looked foolish following a star. Peter looked foolish getting out of the boat. And Jesus looked foolish hanging naked on a cross. But again, faith is sometimes the willingness to look foolish. And the results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. David defeated Goliath. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter walked on water. And Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but I consider it an honor to be included in that kingdom, regardless of how this world may view me. Now we turn to the final chapter in our study of 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at just the first three verses. Imagine this. You're on a game show, and the question given you for $1 million is, what was King David's greatest sin? You think to yourself, I can't believe it. This is so great. I've been spending like the last 18 months studying the life of David. I'm going to give Pastor Bill half this money. And so you clear your throat and say, David's greatest sin was his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. You're already thinking of ways to spend that money when to your horrified surprise the man says, I'm sorry, the answer is David's misguided census in chapter 24. I'm sorry you don't win the money, but we will be sending you home with a nice set of kitchen knives. Now, why would I say that this was David's greatest sin? Well, his sin with Bathsheba was really just a family matter that only had a few involved. And this sin here, which we will see next week, 70,000 people will die because of David's prideful rebellion against God. Can you even imagine that? The pain, the guilt, and the excruciating burden David must have felt as 70,000 people lost their lives. And David knew that his rebellion is what caused it. Look at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? 
In verse 1, we are told that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. There is no explanation in the text for the Lord's anger. This suggests that we do not need to know the reason why the Lord's anger was kindled. But it is very important for us to understand that the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel before any of the events of this chapter has taken place. There certainly was a reason, because the Bible is consistently clear that God's wrath is always righteous and it is never unjustified. Now, in this section, we do have what seems like a Bible contradiction. In verse 1, it states that God incited David to number the people. But in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21.1, we are told that Satan is the one who incited David. So how do we reconcile this? Did God or Satan incite David to take this census? It's really pretty simple. Let me say first that Satan certainly opposed God's people throughout all of the Old Testament history, but this is one of the four instances in which the Old Testament and where Satan is named specifically as the one at work. The other three are when he tempted Eve, when he attacked Job, and when he accused Joshua the high priest. So the answer of this is both are true. God permitted Satan to tempt David in order to accomplish his purpose that he had in mind. This is simply the same story told from two different angles or perspectives. Now God's sovereignty means that he is always in control. God does not tempt David, but he allows Satan to tempt David. And David takes the bait and commits a sin that ultimately calls down God's judgment upon Israel. And so without realizing it, David and Satan do what God wants them to do out of their own free will. So, follow me here. David numbers the people not because God forced him to, but because of the sin that was already lying dormant in his heart. You see, God knew the devil would quickly spot that and take advantage of it. And sometimes the Lord will allow the enemy to test our faith to show us what is in our own heart. But if we do fail that testing, it's not God's fault. It is just us acting out what was in our hearts all along. And so there's no contradiction. We understand that even Satan serves the Lord's purposes. So putting the text together, we could say, the Lord used Satan as his agent in inciting David to be his agent of his anger against Israel. We should understand the Lord is able to use both good and evil means to accomplish his purposes without in any way diminishing human responsibility for the deeds themselves. There are a number of outstanding examples of this general truth. Joseph said to his brothers who intended to kill him, As for you, you meant this as evil against me, but God meant this for good. Their actions was evil, but God was involved in bringing good out of their evil actions. More dramatically still, Peter said of the crucifixion of Christ, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless and wicked men. Now the killing of Jesus was indeed a wicked act for which you lawless men were fully responsible. Yet it was also according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
So, divine sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility, neither does human responsibility diminish divine sovereignty. The Lord has his purpose in what he incited David to do without compromising David's responsibility for what he did. Now, according to 1 Chronicles 27-23, God had promised that the number of children of Israel would be as the stars of the heavens. And so they were not to be numbered arbitrarily, nor to have any type of limit put upon them. For in the end, they were God's people and not David's. So to number them in this case was an act of human arrogance and self-exaltation. It was to see them as David's own people, rather at his disposal, rather than as God's people, to be preserved by, by him as he willed. It seems that David in his pride is bowing to the dreaded scourge of statistics, counting the people instead of counting on God. He wanted to see how large his kingdom was. He wanted to see how impressive his army was. And so counting soldiers was the opposite of trusting God. Now, Early in David's life, he wrote in Psalm 20, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sadly, it would seem at this moment that David has forgotten what he wrote. But the thing is, we look at David's sin with Bathsheba, and it's easy to recognize this is a major sin in David's life. But now we're introduced to a much more subtle sin that if we weren't told of it, we wouldn't have even known it had occurred in David's life. And it is the sin of pride. Someone has said that pride is a disease that makes everyone sick except the person that has it. And as we read the Bible, we discover that God is not only concerned about the outward sins of the flesh, but also sins of the heart and attitude, which is where most of us live our lives every day. And I think that if we were to rank sins this morning, adultery would probably be right near the top. But the more I study God's word, I believe that pride would be at the top of the list. Because starting with Satan, pride is where everything that is evil got its start. Do you think I'm pushing this too far? In Proverbs 6.16 it says this, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Guess what is the first thing on the list that the Lord hates? It's a proud look. It was pride that led to Satan's fall. It was pride in the garden that told men you can be like God. It was pride that caused the Tower of Babel to fall. And it will be be the pride of a world system that God will judge at the end of the days. But isn't this something? In verse 3, even Joab, who is not noted for moral and spiritual acuity, objected to David's order. Now, if you've been with us following Joab, you know he normally has a spiritual sensitivity of a goat. But here he is certainly trying to warn David in the most respectful and appropriate of ways. In essence, what he's saying is, David, I hope that God really blesses you, but please don't do this thing you are proposing. As we finish up this morning, it amazes me that even if you are a king like David, with everything at your disposal, it is still possible to not be satisfied. I read a few years ago, five-year-old Shuri Cruz, the daughter of Tom Cruise, 
was seen throwing a temper tantrum in a toy store. Now, this was a five-year-old girl with a $130,000 Christmas list, including a $100,000 pony. Now, it's hard to believe she would want anything more, but that's just the way we're wired. When we seek the things of the earth, we will never be satisfied. Only the Lord can give true satisfaction. And those times we try to get satisfaction from anything or anyone else, we are setting ourselves up for a miserable time in this life. We'll come back next week as I hope to finish 2 Samuel. And Lord, we want to do things your way. And as I read accounts like this, it makes me always want to watch myself even more closely. Because I know, Lord, that my heart can be desperately wicked if I don't bow down to you daily and do things the way that you would have me to do them. Have your way in this room this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.